We wanted to round out another great season of Build with a recap of key learnings from all of our guests. We had an incredible roundup of executives from thought-leading companies join us and share their candid points of view on everything from go-to-market and product strategy to organizational design, even to optimizing productivity. Let's take a run back through some of our favorite clips. To kick us off, Leela, the CMO of SurveyMonkey, talked about the changes companies are making to both their product and go-to-market strategies to adapt to the rise of the end user in the software decision-making process. We're in the business of marketing to humans and trying to help them to get value, to be able, in our case, to leverage feedback to drive growth and innovation for their for their organization. So, so in some ways, I think that dichotomy that, that used to exist is sort of melting away. And I think some of the ways that shows up, for example, are in voice and tone. So I don't know of classically B2B marketing organization out there that isn't trying to be more approachable and friendly and warm in their tone because they understand you know, the, the importance of having that sort of human, human aspect. Equally, I think enterprise players are starting to think, are really embracing this notion of sort of consumer-grade technology. So as consumers, we've all been spoiled by the fact that we have this really powerful supercomputer in our back pocket called an iPhone or a smartphone of some sort. And so consumer expectations for what technology can deliver have really heightened. And that then parlays into what they expect when they flip open their laptop at work and start to use enterprise tools and technologies. So I think overall, we're seeing more demand, more appetite for consumer grade in the enterprise, whether you talk about the technology, whether you talk about the marketing, the voice, the tone, the methods, everything else. So I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot more convergence of, of the, two, the two disciplines, if you will. Christopher, the chief product officer of HubSpot, emphasized the need to align your go-to-market motion with the way your customers prefer to buy the type of software you're selling. While he believes being product-led makes sense in some cases, he doesn't see it as a one-size-fits-all solution. You know, as time goes on and as we learn more, it only becomes less cut and dry. (laughs) Any part of this geography you look at, you know, e-commerce, self-serve, et cetera, is absolutely great. You know, winning the hearts and minds of the end user, absolutely great. Love it. It does not always work, you know, it, it, structurally in terms of who your buyer is and who, you know, is ultimately making the decision, it may not work. You know, I suspect, for, for instance, in service, we have our, our new service hub, you know, I, I just don't think that's going to be a product that end users adopt and bring to their boss. The buying motion for something like a help desk is, I just think, very, very different from that. If somebody walked up to, you know... Allison Elworthy at HubSpot and said, you know, four of our support reps are using this other thing. You know, they really like it. We should buy it. And they're probably going to get laughed out of the room just because it's, you know, this is something that the CIO buys or the CFO or the head of services or something, you know, and, and is adopted and is required adoption. You're not going to get paid if you're not using this thing. And then sales is very different. Marketing is very different. So, you know, having one go-to-market motion that is the quote-unquote correct way to do SaaS, you know, modern SaaS, falls apart when you look at the texture of the actual buying process. Now, I think that the truisms that are there are lots of people who want to try software, see it, touch it, evaluate it, roll their sleeves up, and just click around. I'm kind of one of those people. I'm I'm a get out of my way, let me see it kind of adopter of things. And there are many, many people who are not that way and who really want to have a conversation. They want to, you know, have have their hand held a little bit and they want to talk through the anxiety of adopting something at work. We we have to remember that when you adopt a tool at work and you're the champion inside a company, 
you are betting your career <laughs> in large part on the fit of that tool. And so having a really high quality consultative sales process adds an enormous amount of value to the people who really want it. Brian Balfour, the founder of Reforge, had a similar take on adjusting your go-to-market motion depending on the problems you're trying to solve for customers. He's often seen companies trying to copy-paste go-to-market strategies across their different products rather than solving for the best strategy in a first principles manner. And one of the biggest mistakes I see is like when you build a new use case, they don't have any sort of hypothesis of how they're going to grow that use case. They just kind of assume that whatever growth motion that got them to where they are today is the one that is going to actually help grow that other use case as well. And sometimes that's true, but oftentimes it's not. And so that's exactly like what we saw at HubSpot was that while our old growth motion certainly contribute to some growth, it like didn't fuel it. And so we had to like navigate and figure out our way of to that more of that product-led growth model to like figure out like what were the loops that were going to drive, you know, that use case. So, you know, navigating this is like really hard and like... I think some of the best minds out there that I've learned a lot of this from are people like Casey Winters, who's now like the chief product officer at Eventbrite and Sean Klaus, who I, who I talked to about earlier. And of course, Andrew, you know, who's now at A16Z, but uh, it kind of goes both ways is like, I think sometimes we're too eager to solve new use cases without really understanding, you know, what's going to drive them. Shopify's GM of platform, Brandon, walked through the risks of creating a platform for others to build upon. Yeah, I'd say there's two major risks. One is just to your own velocity. If you're going to build something with a platform mindset, it's probably going to double, triple at least the time it takes to get something to market. Because like usually when you just build a feature, you just have to figure out mostly the problem is like, what is the customer going to interact with and what is sort of the data model that they need to use. But when you think about a platform, you actually have to probably build it at one level lower in terms of abstraction. And then you have to really launch an API first, and then you have to build your feature on top of that. So it really elongates the product cycle. So that's probably the first risk is just being slower for you know eventual long-term speed. And the second risk is the overall risk of platform, which is when you no longer have control on what's being built, then you no longer have control on what your customers are always experiencing to an extent. And that's always risky, right? Like we pride ourselves on making a very simple product that like someone can build a side business on their kitchen table on the weekend with. But as soon as you start to say like, oh, and then they're going to use three apps made by three developers around the world and they have slightly different user experiences and things like that, you're kind of making it more complicated. And there's, there is risk to that. Mira Yal, the author of Hooked and Indistractable, examine the barriers that keep us from achieving our goals and staying on track with our commitments. He shared some fantastic tactical advice for how to avoid distraction. It turns out that a lot of what we believe is really self-defeating. There are a lot of bits of folk psychology that people believe that really does hurt us. One of the prevalent myths is around abstinence. <laughs> there are books written today, and we hear some people profess that we should go on a digital detox, that we should do a 30-day minimalist plan. And I'm going to tell you that stuff doesn't work, and here's why it doesn't work. For the same reason that it didn't work for me when I was clinically obese. So I used to be clinically obese and I would go on these 30-day diets. No carbs for 30 days, no this, no that for 30 days. And of course, at the end of the 30 days, guess what happened? <laughs> right? I'd stuff my face full of the stuff that I was denying myself. And I would come back with a vengeance because I hadn't dealt with really why I was overeating. I wasn't eating because I was hungry. I was eating my feelings. When I was feeling bad about myself, I would eat. When I was bored, I would eat. When I was mad at myself for overeating, I would eat. 
And if we don't deal with that and understand what it is we are looking to escape when we do too much of any distracting activities, and when we go off track and do something we later regret, that's where we have to start. So it doesn't make sense to have strict abstinence. What we need to do is to learn how to master these internal triggers by having a different set of tools. So one technique I talk about in the book that's very effective is called the 10-minute rule, where what we do with the 10-minute rule is to tell ourselves we can give in to any distraction, whether it's checking your phone or eating that piece of chocolate cake or smoking that cigarette, whatever it might be, whatever that distraction is, that thing you don't want to do, you can give in to it in just 10 minutes. And in those 10 minutes, your job is to do what's called surf the urge. And I teach you exactly how to do this in the book. I teach you this technique for just sitting with a sensation, not judging it, not being contemptuous about it, but exploring it with curiosity. And it turns out that this technique of just telling yourself, yep, I can give in to that distraction in just 10 minutes is a very effective way to disarm the pull of these urges. Fareed, the former director of product at Slack, dove into the optimal org structures for different phases of a company's life cycle. And I think there are a couple of different ways you can organize, but I find that still when you're early, the best teams tend to keep teams together, like groups of people together so that they learn to work together and can be super effective, but maybe their priorities change from quarter to quarter. So for instance, you might have a team that's working on onboarding for one month but is working on a new product experience the next month because your overall priorities are changing, but you want to keep team structures the same. I think the next phase is when you really get to what I call the sort of zone defense era, where you really need to have teams owning systems from end to end, from top to bottom. And you have areas of concern that are constant over time as, you've, as your team has grown. As you start to build and develop or hire leaders into the organization, you want to have them have clear uh, priorities in their area. And that's where I think the phase three sort of happens. And often you'll have new teams spin up and then roll into those or new teams turn into new pillars over time. So I think it's hard to say when those things happen. I think it's really a nature of the maturity of your product and how much, you know, how quickly you're moving than it is the size of the team. Camille, the head of marketing at Notion, cautioned teams from getting too outcomes focused in their growth efforts early on. She encouraged listening to customers and testing different hypotheses before focusing on attaining specific metrics. And I would say you want to give yourself some generous time, particularly when it comes to using content in order to reach this type of goal. The worst thing you can do is constrain any sort of content producer with very specific stringent metrics from the beginning. Uh, it's one of the most generous things that first round did for me in particular was say, let's see how this goes for six months. Let's try a bunch of stuff and let's just be rigorous about knowing what success metrics would look like, but not necessarily be beholden to them to make all of our decisions. So I think you want to give yourself some latitude to see where people are gravitating and, or, and also invest a ton of time in just listening because that's going to give you the biggest leg up if you invest the time earlier rather than having to go back and, you know, be like, oh, is this actually something people want or are interested in? Guillermo, the CEO and founder of Zite, underscored the importance of delivering value to end users in a freemium or open source model prior to asking for payment in order to create champions within the organization. We actually had to make the free tier deliver on the exact quality and value as you know you would get as an enterprise customer at least for your first initial experiences because we found out that a lot of our largest customers ended up being just persuaded by front-end developers they were just trying it out on the free tier 
And they were like, look at this. Here's the URL. I just deployed it. And the person on the other side gets the URL. And they're like, wow, this works amazingly. I can't believe it's this easy. I can't believe it's this fast. So what we found is, okay, you have to treat, and this goes back to the idea of open source, right? You kind of want to treat everyone equally. You want to give a great experience to everyone. And for us, the free tier delivers on that because it selects for the features and performance that our customer, our first initial point of contact with the world, which is the front-end developer, they'll be in love with it immediately. Rahul, the CEO and founder of Superhuman, related product design to game design and uncovered the strategy behind how he built a product that users love. So you have to take the workflows that a user is doing and distill them down into goals. Goals turn out to be one of the five critical factors that at Superhuman, we consider that's part of our game design philosophy. So there are goals, there's emotions, there's controls, there's toys, and there's flow. Goals are the uh, the first and some of the most important. All games need goals, it turns out. And goals are a defining feature of games. But we can't just have any goals. We need good goals. And for a game, good goals need to be three things. Concrete, achievable, and rewarding. Sean, our very own director of corporate development here at OpenView, pulled back the curtain on how we as investors think about valuation and in turn how founders should think about it during their next fundraise. I think pretty simply, we can be really quantitative about quote unquote fair valuation. We can also be really qualitative and I sort of come out somewhere in between the two. We have to know the numbers, but it's also pretty situational. On the quantitative side, I mean, we can look at cash flow analyses, comparable company transactions, public companies to help sort of triangulate fair value and determine what cash flows are worth or the potential cash flows a business could generate at scale. And I think all of that's great. I love modeling in Excel as much as the next person, but I think the answer is a lot simpler and more qualitative. A fair valuation and what folks have to think about is what's going to make them happy? What's going to help them accomplish their goals? If raising at a high valuation helps shareholders keep more ownership of the company, have good publicity for marketing, recruiting, validation for potential customers, great. If a lower valuation fits better with the risk tolerance of shareholders and raising lower means they don't have to go on an empire-building mission to create a deck of corn, deliver their investors' target returns, I think that's great too. So. All that's to say, when setting a fair valuation, founders can optimize for what makes their shareholders, which is oftentimes themselves, the happiest. They're trade-offs, of course, but it becomes much more qualitative. It's not purely quantitative, and there's what is mathematically right, but there's also what's right for any one given company and the shareholders that are around the table. If you haven't already, give these thought leaders a listen on Season 8 of Build. And to wrap up a great season, thanks for joining us. We'll see you back on Season 9.